Good morning, church. Welcome here this morning. I like you guys. Well, thank you. Thank you. I, I was not fishing for a compliment. You know, I just don't think I, I don't think I say it enough maybe, but I really like you guys. I, I love this church. I feel it is such a privilege uh, for myself and my family to be a part of this family. And uh, I hope that you are a blessing to one another the way that you're a blessing to, uh, to myself. Uh, have you heard that fairy tale by Hans Christian Andersen called The Ugly Duckling? Before you're familiar with that story, it's the story of a, a mother hen who had uh, 10 eggs in her nest, nine hatched, and there was just one left. It was a bit of a bigger egg. And uh, finally, when that age, uh, egg uh, hatched, out came a chick that was, um, was bigger and stronger than the others, and it was gray and ugly, or so they told the chick. They all thought it was kind of weird looking. It just didn't fit, and, and, and the mother hen and, and the other ducklings let that one, that tenth, tenth duck know often that it was ugly, and they didn't really want it around. Uh, that poor duckling was very unhappy. The hens pecked him, the rooster would fly at him, the ducks would bite him, the farmer kicks him in the story. So one day he just runs away. He's so discouraged. And he comes to a river, and at this river he sees all these other birds. They're big, beautiful birds, white, long necks. Their wings are beautiful. And that little duckling looked at them longingly and he wanted to be one of them. He wanted to be with them. They were swans. And oh, how he wanted to be a swan. The winter came and the swans migrated and it was a cold, hard winter and the duckling was, that ugly duckling was very unhappy. But when spring came again, those swans came back and he saw them at the pond. And um, he so wanted to be one. Um, but he was afraid of them, and he was so discouraged that he wanted to die, so he ran to the river's edge, and when he got to the edge of the river, the story tells us that he looked down in the water, and he saw his reflection, and there he realized he was not a duckling at all. He was a swan. I try to tell it as dramatically as possible. It's kind of hard with ugly duckling, but he found out he was no ugly duckling. He'd been a swan all along. He just never knew it, never knew he was a swan, wasn't living like a swan. And so finally when he discovered he was a swan, he, he went out in the water and he joined the other swans and they took off in flight and he flew together with them. As we go through this series, uh, I kind of feel like what we've been doing is we've been coming to the water's edge and we've been looking at our reflection, okay? Who are we really? Not who do I think I am, not who do others think I am or say I am. Who am I fundamentally? And so as, we go, as, we, as we've been going through this series, we've been discovering who we are in Jesus Christ. We've been reminded of these things. We've been reminded that Jesus has overcome everything that can come against us in life and Jesus has secured our victory. Paul opens the book of Ephesians. We're gonna spend some time in Ephesians. He opens by saying that God has blessed you with every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ. Every spiritual blessing. And so the big idea through this series is this, that victory is not achieved. 
It's not something that we strive for. It's something that we simply receive through faith in Jesus Christ. The key is not to fundamentally change ourselves or to change our situation or our reality. It's to know who God has already made you to be and to live in light of that reality. It's to look in the pool and see your own reflection. Uh, and we need to look at our reflection because there's a lot of things in life that we go, go, go through that drive us crazy. And I mean that like in the technical word of the word crazy. What does it mean to be crazy? It means to not be able to distinguish between fantasy and reality. To not be able to adhere to reality. And there's things in life that would just drive us crazy. And so we're taking a look at at this reflection, um, discovering who we are in Jesus Christ and how do we live in light of that reality. And we find, as Paul has said, that our struggle in life isn't fundamentally against our boss or our spouse or our bank account or that disease or whatever else else we're struggling with. Um, Our deeper struggle is the struggle of the mind and the heart. It's, it's the struggle of our thoughts and our feelings and desires. And so Paul in the book of Ephesians is going to describe how we can live in the reality of our victorious position in Jesus Christ. He's gonna tell us that God has given us all these pieces of armor to wear, each one of them guarding against a different attack a different trouble that we can face in life. He says this in Ephesians chapter six. We'll begin at verse 14. He says, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. And we've talked about the importance of, of, of truth to come against the lies that Satan would tell us, that we might tell ourselves. God tells us who we are. Right? He says, buckle around your waist the belt of truth. Put on the breastplate of righteousness to overcome the power of guilt and shame in life that binds you. He says, put on the boots of peace. Have your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. When you know the peace that Jesus has secured for you, peace with God, you're able to let go of anger and bitterness and it doesn't have to have a grip on your life. You can live at peace with other people. He says, put on the shoes of peace. He says, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And so last week we looked at the shield of faith. God's perfect faithfulness to us and our ability to obey his word without condition to overcome the fears and the doubts that life brings our way, that stops us from experiencing what God has for us. This morning we come to verse 17 when Paul says, take up the helmet of salvation. We're gonna talk about the helmet of salvation. Um, A helmet is only required if, if you're involved in an activity that has danger, right? So a cro- crocheters don't wear helmets, <laughs> right? They have other problems, okay? But they, but they don't need a helmet, right? Badminton players don't need to wear a helmet. You only wear a helmet if you're in, involved in an activity that has danger with it. Close combat, right? Motorcyclists wear helmets. Football players wear helmets. Hockey players wear helmets. Construction workers wear helmets, I think. Do they? I think sometimes. 
Uh, soldiers wear helmets. Right? Helmets are essential. Uh, I don't need to tell you what a helmet's for. It protects the head. There's important things in here. There's a brain. You can't live without this. It protects the neck, the spine, which is essential to well-being. Um, Ten years before Paul wrote the book of Ephesians, the, the Roman army r- totally redesigned their helmet. Uh, up until that point, they just kind of had a, a skull cap as a helmet. But about ten years before Paul wrote this, they added that flange to the back of the helmet that protected the neck. And they added these two plates that were hinged that protected the sides of the face and they tied together at the bottom. So when Paul says, put on a helmet of salvation, the people who read that, this is what they would have been thinking of. So this morning I want to try to answer a few questions. First of all, what is this helmet that we've been given? Why have we been given it? What does it guard against? And then lastly, how do we wear it? How do we put it on? Paul says that this helmet that God has given us is the helmet of salvation. Now, if you've, if you've, sorry, Shelly's making weird hand movements over here, so I just, she's distracted. Are you okay? Okay, stop. Stop. Jeez. (laughs) Where was I before I was rudely interrupted? I'm kidding. Now you feel so bad. He calls it the helmet of salvation. Now, when you hear the word salvation, something comes to mind right away. What picture do you see when you hear the word salvation? I know what immediately comes to my mind. Okay? If you've been around church for a while, you hear that word and you kind of already, you put that in a box. Now, Paul, earlier in this book, he's already talked about our need for salvation. He says we all need to be saved. Back in chapter two, verses one, he says, as for you, speaking to all of us, he says, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you lived, okay? All all of you have have rejected God in the way you have lived your life. You You have gone your own way. And because of that, he goes on to say that we are all by nature deserving of God's wrath. We are all under or deserving the righteous judgment of a holy God. But he continues in verse four, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive. Notice that's past tense. Made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. For it is by grace that you have been saved. So he says, which you all, I'm sure know by now that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. So that by faith in him and what he has done for us, by repentance and faith, as Paul says here, we are saved. We have been saved from the penalty of our sin and brought into right relationship with God. He has redeemed us. So Paul, Paul talks about how salvation happens in the moment here, in a moment, in, in past tense, it's done. And that's how I normally think of salvation. I normally think of salvation in past tense. That's something that has happened. So when I hear the word salvation, I, I right away picture Jesus on the cross and he's dying. 
and then he's dying there for my sins, for the forgiveness of my sins, and then I picture myself when I may be like a 10-year-old boy kneeling at my bedside where I'm asking uh, God to forgive my sin and I'm inviting Jesus into my life to be my Lord and my Savior, and I look back to that point and I say, it's when I put my faith in Jesus that I was saved. And so that's the picture I, I see, and maybe yours is very similar. And so we normally think of salvation as something that's happened. And that's true, the Bible speaks about that, but, but, but that's not the complete picture, okay? Salvation, according to Paul and the other writers, is much bigger than something that has already happened to us. He says in Ephesians chapter one, verse 13 and 14, you were also, there it is, past tense, you were also included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked, again, that's past tense, this has happened, you were marked in him with a seal. You know what a seal is? It's like a stamp, and it, and it means that it's something that, the seal means it's done, it's accomplished, right? When, when, when a team pulls a goalie, and, but then the other team scores an empty net goal, we say they, that goal sealed the victory, right? It's done. We have been marked with a seal, which Paul says is God's promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of our glory. So he says, yes, salvation is past. When you believed you were saved, you were sealed, you were given the Holy Spirit to sustain you through life so that in the future you could be finally redeemed. You could be saved. Paul often talks about salvation as something not just that has happened, but as something that is coming. It's something that is future. And so Jesus even said this. Matthew chapter 24, uh, verse 13. Jesus says to his disciples, the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. What does that mean? Will be saved. Am I not saved? Yes, you are saved, but you will be saved. Paul says in Romans 13, 11, your salvation is nearer now than when you first believed. Your salvation is nearer, which means it's still out there. And every single day, you're one step closer to salvation, Paul says. And so he talks about salvation, not just as something past, but also as something future. And we're gonna see why this is important, not to just think of salvation as past, but also something that we are looking forward to and waiting for. I think Paul is referring to, ultimately, when he talks about that salvation that is coming, he's talking not about Jesus' first coming, he's talking about the second coming. He's talking about the time when Jesus returns and completely and finally brings all things under God's rule and establishes God's kingdom forever and brings us into it to enjoy it forever. That's what he has in mind when he talks about the salvation that is coming to you. That day when you will dwell with God and receive that great inheritance which is, which, which is there for all who believe in Jesus. This is, um, well, before we get to that, Ephesians chapter one, verse 18 He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope, 
That's a key word. We're going to come back to that. So that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance for his people. He says, I pray that you might have the ability to know what is coming for you, that inheritance that is sitting there waiting for you. Any, anyone here ever gotten inheritance? What is an inheritance? What's an inheritance? Man, I, any of you have one of those like, like rich old aunts who never had any kids and just had like 10 cats? I always wanted one of those aunts. You know, that never spent a penny in her whole life and just stuffed it under the mattress and nobody knew she was rich and then, and then, and then she died and, and then you find out the will. I, I, I'm leaving my estate to Rusty Hildebrand. What? I, I hear stories that this happens. I've always wanted to have one of those aunts, but I don't have one of those aunts. Do you have one of those aunts? I wish I did, but, but um, an inheritance is something that belongs to you, but you don't have it yet, okay? It's yours, but you don't possess it yet. That's an inheritance. Paul says, we have a great and glorious inheritance that is coming to us. Peter says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into what? Huh? Uh-huh. Into what? A living hope. He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are being shielded by God's power until the coming of your salvation. You see there again, salvation is future. It's something that is in front of you that you do not have completely yet. That salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. He says you have this great inheritance that is kept in heaven for you. Nobody can take it from you. No no sinister brother of yours can go to your mom in the hospital when she's weak and have her change her will. And then when she dies, you don't get what's owing you. I hear stories of of that happening. Some of you experience that you've been robbed of an inheritance. Happens all the time. He says this inheritance that belongs to us is kept safe in heaven. It is assured to us. So we are saved, Paul says, Peter says, but, but we have yet to be saved. Okay. We are awaiting the salvation, the completion of our salvation, which is to come when Christ returns. So when Paul says, put on the helmet of salvation, what is he referring to when he says salvation? I don't think he's referring primarily to what has been done, Jesus dying on the cross. I think Paul is referring to the future, He's referring to this future salvation that is coming to us. In fact, I don't think that's what he has in mind. I'm pretty sure I know that's what he has in mind because he wrote some of the same things to the Thessalonians, okay? And so Paul did what some of us pastors do. You know, when you, when you go, you, you, you preach to a group of people you never preached to before, you just, you just take out an old sermon, you know, and you, you can use the same one a bunch of times. It's It's great. Um, so, he, so, he, so he takes some of what he's written to the Ephesians and he, and he uh, writes the same to the church in Thessalonica. 
He talks about these various pieces of the armor and he comes to the helmet and he says, put on the hope of salvation as a helmet. Put on the hope of salvation as a helmet. That's why we know he's talking about the future, what is to come for you, okay? That protects us, this hope. Um, What is hope? Hope is something you don't have, right? That's what Paul says. Romans chapter eight, this is what he says, verse 24. For in this hope, that is the coming salvation, for in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. For who hopes for what they already have? You don't hope for what you already have. But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently, Paul says. Hope is about what you don't yet have. Hope is about the future. But whenever uh, the New Testament uses the word hope, it's not the way we use hope, which is to say, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow because I have a barbecue. It's, it's a statement of my desire, what I'd like to see happen. We should not understand that that's what Paul's talking about here. It's not like, I hope so. I hope God's gonna come through. Okay? Hope in the scriptures always refers to something that is absolutely certain, but it's future. It's certain, but it's future. In other words, I think what Paul is saying here when he says, put on the helmet of salvation is this. Set your minds, Christians, on what is coming to you. Look to the future and set your minds on the great inheritance that is coming to you that is nearer today than it was yesterday. Why? Why do we need to have this hope of this coming salvation, this hope, this hope of this inheritance we will receive? Why? I think we need to have this hope to combat discouragement and despair. You ever been discouraged? Of course you've been discouraged. You know, if you're discouraged long enough and your affliction lasts long enough, that, that discouragement can turn into despair. Despair is just an, a, a lack of hope. It's hopelessness. Despair comes when you believe one of two things. The first thing is, there is no end to my affliction. This could just go on forever and ever and ever. There is no end to this. If you believe that, you will despair. The other thing that if you believe it, you'll despair is this. There is no purpose to what I'm going through. You know, because you don't just have to be experiencing pain in order to have despair. You know, there's a lot of people out there. They've got everything you would want. They've they've got a beautiful home, a great job, a great family, lots of money in the bank. They got the cottage. They got the boat. They have it all, and yet they're still filled with despair. Why is that? I mean, I go to Africa. I've been to Africa a few times, and here's people that have next to nothing, certainly compared to me, and they're full of joy. Not all of them. But there's a, there's a heck of a lot more joy there than, there than there is here, in my experience. Why is that? Because you can have it all, but if, but if you don't believe that there's any purpose to what it is you're going through, that leads to despair. So if you believe one of those two things, the result is discouragement and despair. There's no end to my affliction, and there's just no purpose to this. 
And this is where this helmet comes in handy. The hope of our salvation protects us from that despair because it tells us two very different things. The first thing the hope of our salvation tells us is there is an end. You gotta know that, whatever you're going through. There is an end to it. It will, it, it, it will not go on forever. There is a finish line. And every day, you're closer to that. There is an end, the hope of our salvation tells us. And secondly, it tells us, everything that you go through, there is a good purpose for it. It is all leading to that end, where at that end, there will be great reward and glory for you. There's something good at the end, really good. And that reward, that inheritance is forever and ever. So the two words that, that you find associated with this hope throughout the, uh, the New Testament are the words patience and joy. What does this hope of our salvation of this inheritance that is coming for us, what does it do for us? It gives us patience and it gives us joy. In fact, Paul kind of said it pretty simply in Romans 12, 12. Be joyful in hope. We're gonna explore this. There's a connection between hope and joy. Be joyful in hope and patient in affliction. There's great power in hope. Hope produces patience and hope produces joy. Now, we know this scientifically. There was a study done in in the 50s by uh, a scientist uh, who drowned a bunch of rats. I don't know if they could replicate this today. But he took a bunch of domesticated rats and he put them in a big pool of water that they couldn't get out of, okay, to see how long it would take before they would drown. And other than a few, most most of them were able to swim for 40 to 60 hours in water. Those were domesticated rats. And then he took a bunch of rats of the same species, alike in every way except they were wild rats. And he, and he put them in the water and within 15 minutes, they were all dead. They'd all drowned. Those ones swam for 60 hours. These same rats all drowned within 15 minutes. I thought, huh, what's going on here? So then he took more wild rats and, 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 and he tried something. He, 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 he would put them in there and then as they got weak, closer to drowning, he would take them out. Take them out of that position. Hold them, kind of let them recover for a bit. He'd reintroduce them to the water and he would do that for a few times and he found that eventually, after a couple times of that, those rats were able to swim for 60 hours before drowning. So what they discovered is that the death of those rats was not physiological, the death was psychological. They had given up. The ones that died quickly, uh, they, they didn't believe that there was any way out, that there was any end to this, and they just gave up. But as he took out those rats and kind of gave them a reprieve and then reintroduced them, those rats came to believe that, that, that there, there was an end to this, and that allowed them to, to stay afloat longer and longer and longer. Right? It was hope. That motivated them, right? So, so the scientists have even found that there's this great power in hope to produce endurance in us. You, you, you probably know this in your own situation, kind of anecdotally. Like I, I certainly do. Um, I jog once in a while. 
I know you wouldn't believe it. It's a rare sighting, so take a picture if you ever see it happening. I, I think I kind of flail like this when I jog. It's not a very pretty sight. But I, you know, I like the idea of jogging. And, and this is what I find, though. If I say, I'm going to go out and jog. See you in f- half an hour, hon. Six minutes later, I walk back in the house. It's like, it's like you're back already? <laughs> I get out there and I start jogging. And I'm like, oh, that hurts. Oh, okay. oh, that hurts. Why am I doing this? I'm going home. And I just turn and walk back home. I don't last very long, okay? Uh, if I'm just going jogging and I have no goal, I have no finish line, I have no reward. But then a few years ago, I, I uh, registered and ran the half marathon in Winnipeg. And I, I was a little stupid. I can be stupid. I, I had not ran more than four miles in preparation for this. And it was, the race was 13.1 miles. <laughs> anyway, so I got running. And, and lo and behold, you know what? I didn't run the whole way. Didn't make it to 13.1. But I ran until the 10 and a half mile marker. I'd never, be, ever been able to get past four. And, and then I walked a little bit and ran a little bit and crossed the finish line. It, it was totally different. What made it different? What gave me the endurance? It wasn't that I faced any less pain than I did in a different situation. The pain was the same. What was the difference? The difference was hope, I guess. The difference was I knew there was a finish line. And at that finish line, I was going to get a reward. And it was those two things that allowed me to have the endurance in difficulty that I would otherwise not have been able to have. So I've seen that with something like jogging. I remember when Annika was born 11 and a half years ago in the Steinbeck Hospital. It was, boy, that was hard for me. That was, (laughs) that was a hard day. I didn't know if I was going to make it, actually. (laughs) Erica was like, you can do this, hon. I'm like, She's like, breathe, you can do this. And I did it. I did it. And she did it too. She did it too. But you know what? Like, I saw her there, uh, and, and it was her. she didn't have an epidural. It was terribly painful, a pain she'd never ever experienced that sort of pain before. And um, it, was, it was agonizing, the way, the way you know, it appeared, certainly. And um, won't go into more detail, but. Um, you know what I'm talking about if you've been in that room, right? If you've gone through childbirth. It is, it is hard. You, how do you endure that? How do you keep going? How do you not tap out? If, if, if you look at uh, a YouTube video of guys, they, they have this little machine. They, they stick electrodes on a guy's stomach that simulate the pain of childbirth to see how long a guy will last. <laughs> you should go YouTube that. <laughs> it's, it's kind of funny. Um, spoiler alert. It doesn't last very long, okay? It doesn't last very long before rip those things right off, okay? And yet, and yet I watched my wife go through that for hour after hour after hour, and, and, and you've been there, some of you, and so you, wh- wh- what gave the ability to do something otherwise that you would not have been able to do? It's because you knew two things. is because you knew that there was an end to this, and at that end, there was a reward, there was, this, there was this baby at the end. There was this, for you, this great joy at the end. Okay? It was those two things that allowed you women to keep 
going. Mind you, you didn't really have a choice, I suppose, at that point, did you? Right? Um, hope gives endurance, okay? It gives us patience and affliction, uh, but it also gives us joy in that. Be joyful in hope. What's the connection between joy and hope? And I think, I think you know, Paul, it's this. Peter talks about this. When he continues, after he talks about this great inheritance that is coming to us, he says, in all this, this hope you have for the future, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, while you've had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. He's writing to people that are going through hard things of different sorts, all kinds. And yet in in this you greatly rejoice. These things have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth, then gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. He said, you know that even those hard things that you have to endure at the end of all of that, when the finish line comes, there is great glory and reward for everything that you've gone through. There is purpose for it all. When Christ is revealed, that's future. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and you're filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy in the midst of their trials. Why? Because they were looking forward to the salvation of their souls which was to come. They knew what was coming to them. And for them, that brought, that brought great inexpressible and glorious joy. So I think this is the truth. Future joy always becomes present joy. If you know you're going to be happy tomorrow, guess what happens today? You're happy today. Isn't that what Christmas is? Right? I mean, it takes like a few seconds to rip open that gift. December 24th. But, but you experience Christmas a lot more than just December 24th, don't you? Because the future joy you know you're going to have has to become present joy. There's, there's no such thing as a joy that you know you will experience in the future that doesn't become a reality in the present. And you, you know this if you go on trips. When do you go to Arizona and Florida and Mexico? When do you go? You go probably February, early March, right? Why do you do that? It gets you through the winter, Right? Because I know that I have this coming, it allows me to operate differently today. It, 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 it gives me maybe a happiness and a joy and an ability to do these other things today because I know that's coming. And that future joy becomes present joy. It can't help but do so. I mean, if you were to win the lottery and you were to find out you, you couldn't claim your lottery till Friday, when would you become happy? Would you become happy on Friday? When would you become happy? Thursday? When would you become happy? Now, right? You'd become happy now. That joy precedes the receiving of the thing that is promised. Brothers and sisters, I mean, we got something better than a lottery, lottery winnings awaiting us, do we not? 
Paul says, you have this glorious inheritance, you, and you cannot squander it, because it's there forever and ever and ever, and it's coming. It's coming. And tomorrow, you're gonna be a day closer to that than you are today. And the day is coming. And that, he says, allows us to have joy in hope. I mean, I think, I think joy in, in our hope that is in future things that we know we will receive is actually a deeper joy than joy in, in the, in, in, that's rooted in the present but temporary things. That, that's actually a weaker joy. I, I, know, I don't know about you, when I go to Arizona for a week of holidays, on day two, I'm like, six more days. And then on Tuesday, I'm like, five more days. Four more days. Back to reality. You ever do this? Right? I mean, you're in the thing of joy, the thing that you've been waiting for, and already you're starting to lament, you're starting to get sad because you know, even though it's present, it's not gonna be future. Right? So, so joy in that is actually a weaker joy than joy in future things that are lasting things. That's deeper joy. The measure of your present joy is directly related to the measure of your future joy. I think that's true. I think that's what Paul is getting at here. This is how he concludes. We're gonna bring this to a conclusion here. He says, therefore, all this being the case, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. How do you find renewal? How do you find renewal when you're going through on the, on the outside all these difficult things? How can you be renewed day by day? He says, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, that is, on what is present, but on what is unseen, future, for what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. How, how, how did he get that renewal that allowed him to endure through all things and to do it with joy? He did it by fixing his eyes on, on, on what was to come. And when he fixed his eyes on the future, that gave him endurance and joy today. So maybe it all boils down to this. In order to live in the present, we need to think in the future. I think that's what he means when he says, put on that helmet of salvation, the hope of what is to come. In order to, to live well in the present, we need to think in the future. We need to look at our reflection, who we are, what is coming for us. If you don't have a future-oriented mindset, boy, you can be overwhelmed and you can be overcome by the sorrows and the pressures of the present and you can despair. But with the helmet of salvation, with the hope of salvation, we can endure and we can even find joy through that. So Paul says, put on the helmet of salvation Fix your mind on the inheritance that is yours, that is sure, that is to come. How do we do that? 
as we take this home here. There's just a few questions that I encourage you to ask yourself. The first is this. Is there something in your life that is a source of despair for you? A real discouragement. Maybe something you've been going through a while. A sickness you don't see the end of. Some relational strife that you don't see the end of. Some financial burden you don't see that. Whatever it might be is, is in, their li- in your life is there, is there a source of despair there somewhere? And then ask yourself this. Would you say that your joy, if you're being honest with yourself, would you say your joy is more rooted in the seen or in the unseen? Are, are, are you trying to locate your joy in the present things or are you trying to locate your joy in future things? Because what Paul says, in order to find joy in the present, you've got to actually locate your joy in the future. Ask yourself that. And this, this is what I invite you to do every day this week. Just to take two minutes every morning. Just spend two minutes thinking about your inheritance. Think about it. Think about heaven. Think about what is to come that God has promised you. Okay? On the day of salvation. Spend some time actually just thinking about that and thinking how how awesome that is. And then and then just take some time to thank God for that. Thank God for what he has secured for you, which is coming for you. Why don't we begin and do that right now? I invite you to bow your heads, close your eyes. And um, talk to God. Why don't you just begin by, by thanking God for um, the great and glorious inheritance that he has promised you in Jesus Christ. take a minute and say thank you God for that tell him I look forward to that let's just take a moment to ask God to help you fix your eyes on that hope you know that's what Paul said he said I I pray that that you might be enlightened to the hope of your inheritance. Just ask God um, to help you fix your eyes on the future, on that hope. And lastly, why don't you just take a moment and ask God for endurance and joy through whatever it is you're going through. He promises that that hope brings endurance and joy. Just take a moment, ask God for endurance and joy in the present. Father God, 
we thank you that you loved us so much that you sent your son Jesus into the world to die on that cross for our sins. So that just by believing in him, by putting our trust in him, we would be saved from our sin and, and, and we would be heirs of all that belongs to you. And so Lord, we've heard your word this morning that we have this great and glorious inheritance that lies ahead of us. We don't have it now, but we will have it. And you are keeping it safe for us. We thank you, Father, for that inheritance which is coming. And we just pray along with Paul, Lord, that you would enable us, that you would enlighten us to be able to have the hope that comes from knowing that that is ours. Lord, just fill us with that hope today. Lord, whatever it is we're going through, Lord, just pray that you would, you would just help us fix our eyes on the future. To get excited about that. To find great joy in what is coming for us, Lord. And as we do that, I just pray that you would give us the strength, the, the, the patience and endurance and, and the joy that we need to go through anything each and every day, Lord, knowing that tomorrow we're one day closer. We long for that day, Lord. So as we just close our time here by, by singing this last um, song, Lord, I just, we are declaring that it doesn't matter who others say we are, it doesn't matter who we say we are, uh, it only matters who you say we are and what you say we have belongs to us. And so um, we just uh, sing the song now celebrating that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.